I'm Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Last episode, I played a little U.S. immigration law trivia with Fallon to preview some of what we're going to dive into now. This episode, I'm going to walk you through the training I went through to adjudicate visas at the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez. And my former colleague Heather and I will go a little deeper on the U.S. immigration law relevant to making visa decisions. I can't talk about U.S. immigration law without talking about the ineligibilities that can keep a person from qualifying for a visa. Just a caveat that All of the information that I and my interviewees will mention in this episode is open source and available on the internet right now. We will not mention specific cases or offer official guidance on visa procedures. If you're interested in more information on the specifics of the immigration policy I mentioned in this episode, I encourage you to visit the Foreign Affairs Manual, or FAM as we called it, also available on the internet. Finally, I just want to remind you that I am not currently a consular officer and none of the information presented in this podcast is meant to serve as immigration guidance. I am just giving you my perspective based on my personal experience. Okay, so I think at this point you have a running list of phrases you heard me and the other officers use that maybe don't make any sense to you. So allow me to simplify. We use the term visa adjudication to mean making a decision about whether or not someone does or does not qualify for a visa. I don't know why we use that incredibly obscure word for it, but we do. Next, you're going to hear us throwing around the terms IV and NIV over and over. These are the two types of visas that exist. IV for immigrant visas and NIV for non-immigrant visas. To close out, a VLA is shorthand for when a consular officer issues a visa incorrectly in violation of information in the Visa Lookout Accountability System. Finally, a content note. This episode will contain mentions of sexual assault. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's start the training process. So I want to hear about kind of, let's start with the training part of it. Tell me about your impressions of it as you're going through the training um, and what that was like. There's a certain amount of training that happens before you get to post, but I'm going to focus on the aspect of what we actually did at the consulate. For one thing, because our training program was very robust compared to what a lot of consular officers got. So I found out later on, they actually call Ciudad Juarez the Harvard of immigrant visa adjudications because it's the biggest one in the world and it's one of the most high profile. So you really have to know what you're doing. You really have to know the law, its applications, how the systems work, how all of the parts of the immigration system work together. So our training program encompassed all of that. I did... At that time, we were still allowed to do ride-alongs with CBP. So we rode along with Border Patrol a couple of days to see what they were doing on those rounds. They showed us their parts of the border that they usually are looking for people on. They explained to us how a lot of the crossings happened. They talked to us about trends and how that had changed over time. We also sat in on immigration court hearings to hear how it works when someone's trying to claim asylum, which you know ended up being very critical on that border just a few years later. So we got to really see kind of from start to finish how it can work for the other parts. And and that's as well as talking to uh, USCIS 
um, who handle a lot of the documentary parts of the process before it gets to us even in the window. So uh, <laughs> the training program really wanted us to understand as much as possible what the applicants were experiencing. So it took us from the beginning of an applicant's day. So let's say you're an applicant at the embassy for an immigrant visa. In order to get that visa, you had to schedule, first you had to put all the paperwork in. You had to have a qualifying relationship. That person also putting all their paperwork in. Eventually you get approved and said, okay, the documentary part of your petition has been approved. You're okay to go for interview at your, you know, country's consulate that handles immigrant visas. Then they would show up at the embassy on their day of the interview. You would show up with all of your documents. Before this, you will have done a medical exam, possibly two, uh, in case there's anything in your medical exam that the referring physician felt like needed to be looked into more deeply. On the day of the um, interview, you're going to go to our biometric center. You're going to get your fingerprints taken. Usually this happens at about 6 or 7 a.m. Let's say your interview is at 10. You're going to show up at 6 to get those fingerprints taken for the first time. Then you're going to move on to a space where you can put your belongings because you're not allowed to bring anything into the consulate except for your documents. So your food you brought, water, purse, keys, all of that stuff, phone, all of that is going into that secured location because you can't bring any of that in with you. Why not? Security issues. It's a security standard at pretty much all counselor sections that you are not allowed to bring those things in. Do they tell people that beforehand? Well, they will tell you along the way. If you have a good immigration lawyer, your immigration lawyer will prep you for this. So some people are prepared, but it, it honestly doesn't matter because let's say you have a newborn or you have two newborns or you have kids or you're a family of six and a lot of them are under the age of 12. It really doesn't matter how much people tell you what's going to happen. Your kids are going to be sitting in there with nothing to do, no toys, no anything. Some of the consular waiting rooms have like little toys in them or they'll have something on the TV, maybe for kids, but it's not everywhere. And it, it's still not really enough because, like I said, you've got we're, we're here at six. We've taken fingerprints. We put ourselves in a locker. Now you're going to go through consulate security. Consulate security is going to do its thing. It's it's basically, I'd say TSA adjacent. So it's frequently more intense than that. So you're going through that line. You're waiting with everybody else with you. You have your appointment time. And then you'll go to the outdoor waiting area. The outdoor waiting area is basically, I mean, a large concrete space. It's covered, thankfully. And also the one in Juarez is relatively nice. You know, it's got some fans, but you're sitting out there. You're going to sit in that outdoor waiting area until your um, visa appointment time is reached. And then at the appointment time, you're going to enter the inside waiting space. You're going to go up to a window with one of the local staff in it. They're going to take your fingerprints again. And they're going to look over the documents you brought in as well as looking over the rest of your case. So. That's what we call the first documentary review. So then the local staff will make notes for me, the officer about, oh, X is, you know, they're missing this document. They're missing that document or, you know, oh, case looks, you know, complete or, you know, like spellings of the name that might be different can be noted. So you've taken your fingerprints again. This person at the window has looked through your documents. They've asked you basic questions about the case. Then you get a ticket. You get a little number. And you sit down in the indoor waiting area and 
that could take any amount of time, but at least now you're at the front, you know? And then at some point, one of the windows will flash out that number that you're holding and you'll go to that window and I will, or the officer will have your case and you'll go through the interview process after, after all of that with everybody who came with you, who's in your petition. Well, okay. (laughs) I think we need to pause. This would be a great place for an ad. (laughs) I am stressed and we are and so tired. That is exhausting. And they make each of us do it when we're officers to see exactly what the process is like. They don't make us do all the waiting. So they let us kind of speed through um, a lot of it. But you see that like, oh my gosh, like this person got here at 6 or 7 a.m. to be at my window by 11. (laughs) It is designed to maximize the number of people who can be seen per day so that they can open as many visa appointments as they can per day because... Consular services is a way that the U.S. State Department makes money. They make a lot of money because these applications all cost money, whether or not you are approved. There are no refunds. And if you are refused, a lot of people keep applying over and over again um, for many reasons. But yeah, it's, it's revenue generating and their goal is to maximize how much revenue they can generate. So they set very intense quotas and they teach us to adjudicate rapidly. So I'm going to kind of throw this caveat out here. We're probably going to start talking about some of the finer points of immigration law. And I'm just going to caveat again. I am no longer a consular officer. I cannot give immigration advice to anybody. I cannot give advice on the visa process to anybody. What I can talk about is my experience. Uh, and I won't be mentioning any specific cases. And all of the information I'm about to mention is open source. You can Google it and find it for yourself. So there are 15 categories of ineligibility that we are looking at based on the immigration portion of the law. Some of those categories only apply to certain types of visas, but when you're dealing with immigrant visas, usually you're looking at, I believe, nine of those categories. If you've gotten to my window... USCIS has already determined that this is a valid petition. So my job is to either concur with that or disagree with it. Now, my disagreement can take two tracks. Either you're ineligible because your family relationship is not legitimate, the relationship on which the basis of your petition rests, or because something else about you, it makes you ineligible for this immigration visa. Now, this is one that surprises a lot of people, but you might remember I mentioned you do a medical exam beforehand. That's because we're looking for certain categories of medical condition that are ineligibilities for entering the United States. And and this is where I'm going to caveat also that until 2010, HIV status was uh, one of those conditions that would get you, you know, banned from the, well, not banned, but that would render your petition ineligible. Thankfully, that's no longer the case. But if you have active syphilis, tuberculosis, or leprosy, Uh, Those things will all (laughs) keep you out of the United States, at least until they're being treated. So that's what we call an ineligibility that can be overcome. So ineligibilities can be overcome or they can be waived. You can apply for a waiver and get one. Uh, Or some ineligibilities have no waiver and cannot be overcome. So let's say some of the ineligibilities that exist come with 
um, time related, uh, not punishments, but consequences. So if you have entered the United States unlawfully and and stayed for any period of time, you are no longer allowed to enter the United States until a certain time period is passed. Or let's say you are deported from a port of entry after entering the United States unlawfully. Usually you can't re-enter the U.S. within 10 years of that date of departure. After the date of departure, you are now eligible to apply for a waiver. And then you're good to go, more or less. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> it's it's dense. I mean, this is really what most of our training is about is learning each of these ineligibilities, learning the ways that they um are interpreted currently, and then finding ways, you know, making sure you get all of the information you need to make a correct adjudication. So you have people who maybe have entered multiple times unlawfully. You know, you start their date from the latest entry or the latest, you know, and it's all about making sure you get that timing right. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that requires interpretation. Some things have to do with criminal records that you have to check through and figure out. There are other ones that have to do with transnational criminal activity, um, certain political affiliations. Uh, but a lot of the ones we dealt with, obviously, on the Mexican border had to do with unlawful presence and or deportation. And some of that was very difficult to figure out. Uh, going back in time. Um, and just sort of figuring out what happened in a situation and trying to piece it together clearly enough to come up with a, a, an adjudication that made sense and was accurate. Because what you don't want to do is get it wrong and then this person has to come back. Or let's say you issue it and they get to the point of entry and, you know, Border Patrol looks at the case, they look at the notes and they decide you were wrong. And so they deny that person's immigrant visa. And they've got to come back and see you all over again. And, you know, maybe they're not going to be eligible or maybe something else happened that has to be considered in the case now. What follows is from my interview with Heather. Did you feel like the uh, the refusal rates were changing over the time that you were there? Um, probably a little bit. Um, like I said, some things like we had to refuse because it was just the new guidelines that we were getting. So in that sense, yes. This 61 change, were you there for the public charge change at all? I don't remember that one, to be honest. Um, so not that I recall. I know so I was the big 61 debate. They never have decided what, what constitutes a misrepresentation and what doesn't, but... Yeah, I don't know if there were any like major changes on that. There were some changes with the, and I'm forgetting all the legalese, um, but the, the child, what was it, this 60? So pretty much if a child was deported and came back and crossed the border and came, whatever rule that was, um, there were some changes to that while I was there. That's the 9C. Um, yeah. Is that the 9C? Deported Probably. from the port of entry or from within the United States. Yes. Yes. Um, but again, I honestly don't remember the, specifically what happened, but it was like not um, to the benefit of the applicant. Let's put it that way. And, it, you know, it was affecting like minors at the time, um, which, again, I did not feel great about because they had no say so in the matter. Right. Um, so I know some of those rules had changed, which, again, probably did increase the refusal rate a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember that. I just remember the, the feeling of just like, ugh, this job just doesn't feel good anymore. <laughs> it probably never felt great, but it especially didn't feel good towards then. So you just heard all about the factors we consider in making a decision. Now we'll explore what it looked like to actually make those decisions and see the impact they had on people's lives. Back to my conversation with Fallon. Sure. I think the first thing for me is to figure out what's the family relationship because different levels of support exist depending on what your family relationship is. So if you have married an American citizen, you have, I would say, the most leeway in what can and can't be done. Um, So if this is a spouse of an American citizen, okay, I already know what I'm looking for is to verify this is a legitimate marriage which means looking at marriage certificate, trying to make sure that you haven't been married to anybody else before, or if you were, you got divorced or they got divorced, your partner, because sometimes it's the American citizen that didn't get divorced. Um, you know, making sure all of the documents are legit. And then, you know, <laughs> beyond the documentation, the question of what makes a marriage relationship legitimate or not is so subjective and so culture by culture I tell you, I had people in my window who, you know, had spent almost no time with their petitioner, hence, you know, in person, they had this very extensive online relationship, but I can't tell you that's not legitimate. I did, I did get a certain number of KVs applicants. Yeah. I mean, we all did. You had a ton, but, um, and the KVs are also pretty smooth in general because it's, it's just very difficult to tell someone your relationship's not real. However, some people were kind of transparent in that, okay, it looks like this petitioner's petitioned for six different people over the course of time for this visa category. How is this relationship different? Or the situation where some of them on their social media have been like, I just got married for immigration purposes only. And it's like, So this is an admission, like you basically just said that this is intended fraud. So we're going to have to deny that. But the powers that be made a ruling that we were allowed to ask for applicants, social media passwords uh, and accounts. Passwords. Can they deny? They can say no to anything. You don't have to provide it. But that means you might not get the visa. Yeah. So there's a there's quite a lot of access out there available Uh, And this was 2013. So, you know, Facebook was still big and people were putting all kinds of stuff on there. (laughs) Now we're like 10 years out from my arrival. So I don't know how they're adjudicating using these things today. But I know back then we were absolutely looking at social media accounts. Because if you are really dating someone, usually they're on your account somewhere. If you are really married to someone, usually they're on your account somewhere. Because people would also show up with these staged photos of them. Anyway, that's very extra but so you're trying to gather all the quote-unquote evidence you can of that relationship and you know people come up with some really unique stuff from time to time the easiest way to prove relationship for us was if you have kids together you got a kid my job is not to decide if this is a good marriage or not my job is to decide is it a marriage okay Okay. all right and this is what i'm about To a stranger who maybe has a totally different cultural context for what marriage means. Because, I mean, we also are working in countries where there are arranged marriages, where people do not meet until they get married. And you still have the right to that immigration benefit. 
You know, I can't tell you that this is not a real mayor. I mean, I could try, but that would be unreasonable based on the cultural context. And now I'm thinking about countries where polyamory. The polygamy and polyamory situation is its own unique thing. Uh, it's something that we definitely have to do. Uh, same thing with first cousin marriage. There are plenty of cultures where first cousin marriage is quite popular. And there are only certain states in the United States that will recognize that. So your immigration benefit is only legitimate if you are moving to those states. You know, same thing with um, being the child of a U.S. citizen. We had all these issues with Hague versus non-Hague adoptions. It ended up being incredibly sad um, because both U.S. and Mexico eventually became party to the Hague Convention. But that Hague Convention, the adoptions that took place before that, I believe we signed on in 1993. But before that, you know, a lot of those adoptions have been overturned, unfortunately, because they didn't happen under the hate conditions or or even after where they didn't happen under hate conditions because it took a lot for that to roll out. And there were plenty of times that I had to deny, you know, what 18 year olds who's standing at my window who'd only ever lived in the U.S. You know, they have two parents who clearly love them and they now have no basis for the petition. They're stuck. Back to my discussion with Heather. Do you, I mean, we just talked about how you felt about adjudicating. Did you feel better about doing IV versus NIV? I mean, you started in NIV and then you moved over to IV. I think there's a little bit of comfort in IV because so much of the decision is is decided by the law itself. Like there's mm-hmm. way less sort of free, you know, free coloring space, so to speak, that, you know, as would exist for the NIV side. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and again, too, the pace is different in IV. Um, yes, we have a lot of applicants, but we actually have time to like talk to them a little bit, um, which I thought was useful. But the thing in, in IV, I felt like I encountered more like, weird situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I had people crying in front of me at the visa window because I told them they couldn't see their family for the next 10 years. Mm. Like the impact was different. <laughs> it was felt, I think a bit more over there. So, um, yes, in some situations it was kind of like, just, you know, push the paper. This decision is pretty much made, but in those situations where it wasn't that clear cut. Um, I thought it was definitely more challenging, um, where literally I would have cases where they, when they walked away from the window, like I would have to walk away for a moment too, because I'm like, damn, that was tough. Like I'm, I'm affecting people's like family dynamics now. Um, and again, I'm just following the rules, the law, but you know, I think you realize like, this is not just, you know, somebody not being able to go shopping or go to a tourist attraction or whatever, like you are separating or uniting families now, mm-hmm. which is different. It is different. Do you, I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I think if you look at the job as like a normal person from the outside, it maybe isn't immediately clear that there's uh, an emotional component to it. And I remember seeing, even when I first started adjudicating, you know, someone would get a rough case and you'd see them close the window and walk away and you'd know, okay, Mm -hmm. let me make sure and check on someone. And put the blinds down for a second. Oh yeah. We've all had to do it. People who would be in a yelling match 
in their window. Thankfully, mm. I feel like that did not happen too frequently, but there were definitely <laughs> some people where I'm like, what are you doing over there? What is <laughs> You start seeing the hands coming up in the window and oh yeah, the body language will tell it all. <laughs> that was a big one for me in my education philosophy because I'm like, listen, you hold all the power here. So there's yeah. no reason for you ever to be like yelling at a person. If you really are feeling a way about it, you can have security come and escort them out and mm. they will be there. But like, Real talk, there's really no reason it. This person's going to have an emotional reaction because you're talking about something very important to them right. and you're making the decision. And in some cases, you can't even tell them why you made the decision that you made. That's tough. Yep. Exactly. Or like you come and sometimes too, like I was shocked at the type of people that I would get at my window. Mm -hmm. And again, I, this is my first like real major career, real major job. And I'm like looking like, oh, this person raped somebody and was convicted of it. Or, huh, this person's a drug trafficker. Or, huh, these people look like nice Mennonites, but they're doing all sorts of kind of, like, I just was not exposed to that level of just human behavior in my life. <laughs> it's, it's tough because you, it's, there's no other scenario where you meet a person and within three minutes, you know all of that information about All them. of it. Oh, Yes. And I, I, I guess I'll follow up and ask this. Do you feel like you're you're very confident in your ability to read people now? Do you feel like you really trust your impressions of people after that experience? Mm. So I'll say I always felt like I had a good radar anyways, because I'm an introvert. I naturally observe people and kind of sit back. Like I said, like that's just my philosophy in life. Like I don't immediately kind of jump into anything without getting my bearings. So in that sense, I think I was probably a little bit... Um, I had a slight advantage, I guess, but I will say that that skill was honed <laughs> during my time there. Um, and I think I'm a lot more quick probably to be like, that's BS, like in my head. Whereas before, I think I would give people a little bit more like, hmm, let me listen to them at least. Now I'm just like, mm -mm. like, no, that's incorrect. You're lying to me, right? <laughs> so that sense of my, my, mm -mm, my antenna comes up a lot quicker than it used to probably. Um, so I guess that's a good thing. What was your method to stay on schedule with that interview pace? You know what? I'm not sure I ever reached <laughs> that, that standard. Every, I'll be honest, because again, I struggled initially. Like I said, I felt like a DMV line and I didn't like the fact that I didn't have time in my mind to make like a fair decision. Um, so eventually, yes, you just kind of get into the, the rhythm of it. But I honestly, at the beginning, I probably was not meeting those numbers. I'll be honest, because I felt like I had to at least spend five minutes with a person in order to make a fair decision. Um, you know, like, yes, some people, I literally saw them. They would just ask like two questions and be like, no. And they were sliding that paper underneath the window immediately. And I'm like, that's not, that's not right. Like, I, I would not feel like I am doing my job properly if I don't at least ask like four questions to get a feel for what the person is trying to do. Um, so in that sense, I definitely was probably one of the slower adjudicators, Okay, but I probably did not have as many, um, conversations or case review sessions because I felt like all of my decisions were well justified in my notes. Like my notes were never just like denied shopping. Um, like I didn't just do one word notes, which to me like was not okay because like, how can I come back and look at your notes and understand why the hell you made that decision? The only so. one word notes that I feel like I understood people making is if it was something egregious like 62, 61. Well, like, yeah. We can't really do much about that. Like, you, because I guess I should clarify those are ineligibility codes um, 
for different sections of the law that you can be found ineligible under for um, a tourist visa or a non-immigrant visa. Right. And so if someone has an ineligibility and they're in that category, there is a waiver process, but it's very, it's just considered a lot of extra work. And Mm -hmm. you really have to build a strong case as to why that person is a good issuance for that visa, despite that ineligibility. So in a situation where all of us are, like I said, trying to keep our interviews to two to three minutes on average, seeing that in the notes usually is a quick, like, oh no, you're not (laughs) right. Some things are self-explanatory for sure. But and here's the thing, I think especially with non-immigrant visas, like it's really just so subjective. It's it's the vibe you get from the person. It's whether or not you had breakfast that morning and you're feeling positive or did you wake up on the wrong side of the... Like, let's be honest, like a lot of it is just how the officer is doing that day. Mm. And I think, you know, the, the immigrant visa side, you get less of the subjectivity. But I think with NIVs, like sometimes I would look at the officer and I'm like, you're rejecting everybody that's coming to your window this morning. Like, what's going on with you? And in theory, like, you can justify it however you want. You can just be like, I don't think that they um, have strong ties. Well, like, what does that mean? Like, you have to be able to justify that some bit in your notes. Um, And some officers, I did not feel like did that, but they had the highest rates of getting their cases through. And it's like, yeah, no wonder if that's the way you're interviewing people. So in that sense, I probably was not a great NIV officer because... I was not that fast. Um, eventually, I probably got there, like the more jaded I got throughout my tour. <laughs> I'll be honest. But at the beginning, no, I did not meet 120 applicants a day, probably. Uh, oh, my gosh. It's such an interesting discussion, dude. I Yeah. I still, to this day, look back and I'm still a little like blown away at how much discretion is and how there's like, at least when I was there, no real control for bias. Unless you could get like an, uh, what do they call them? Validation study through. Mm. I remember that old lady validation study they did because before everyone had been denying all the old women. It's like, oh, they just want to move to the U.S. And it's like, then a group of officers actually did the validation study to see what the overstay rates were. And it turns out they were a very safe issuance. Like almost (laughs) all of them were coming back and like using their visas well. So yeah, man. I just, I feel like sometimes I feel it's really cringy how much discretion they give because there's no standard for notes. Not really. Mm -mm. Put anything in there. And even doing case review, they can't really case review more than one to 2% of your cases overall. There's just too many. We're processing too many at a time. Sure. Per officer, you know? And so now you do look back and I'm like, man, there were some people who just got real unlucky. I'm like, I'm sorry mm-hmm. you ended up at this person's window, you know? And maybe. like, you hear them, like, like we're all sitting in a line together and sometimes I would walk by and I'm just like, like, why are you treating that applicant that way? Or why are you asking them that question? Like that is not even relevant to the visa they're, that they're applying for. So, I mean, again, it was very subjective. Bias was definitely prevalent, um, depending on who you're talking to. And you know what? And there were some even interesting dynamics among like the officers. So all of that I think comes into play, but looking at someone's notes, you can't know all of that. Of course not. Um, which is why honestly, like I didn't care for NIVs. (laughs) I much preferred IVs because at least I felt like people had to do a little bit more, um, justification for their decisions. You definitely did. And I think it was, I think IV is a little bit more of like a decision tree where Mm. it's like, 
is X true? If so, then move to step two. You know, it's very like, it's hard to go off the rails in the same way that you can in NIV, because like I said, they can't really check. And Mm -hmm. when in doubt, the department will tell you to refuse. If you are not certain, the department's counsel is to refuse Hmm. the visa, which is wild. And let us not forget that they just increased the cost of visas well last month again I saw, I for like the fourth, them. fifth time. Um, the wait times are horrible. There's a yeah. huge backlog, and this is all public, so I can say this because it's you oh, can go on our everything we've said so far is public. It's public. You can go on our Facebook page and look at this stuff. Yeah, where we're literally having to tell people why there's such a backlog globally, but particularly visas for non-citizens is ridiculous right now. So the fact that we are advised, told, when in doubt, refuse, that's probably in our rational (laughs) self-interest, economically, politically, all of that. And personally, because I don't know if you were there for this, but then they got hit with that wave of like VLAs that started leaking Mm. out for the Mexico adjudicators. So what's the safest thing you can do? Refuse. You're not going to get in trouble for refusing. You Mm -mm. never get in trouble for refusing an NIV, even though it could be wildly damaging for the person that's across from you and completely not based in any real fact or reason. You're not going to get in trouble for a refuser, a refusal on a tourist visa. There's no, that's not going to happen. I mean, and it's true. And if we're, again, mostly junior level officers coming Mm -hmm. in, starting in our career, wanting to make sure our corridor reputation gets off to a good start then yeah, we're going to take the safe path when we can. Why and not? Like, if, you're, if you're able, I mean, this is what really stuck. And I apologize because I I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm also just, speak I on really it. feel so strongly about the anti-poor bias, the socioeconomic bias mm-hmm. that happened on that line. It was so coded in the norms. It was coded in people's language. I mean, if you... <laughs> If you notice any of it, I think it's really hard to, at least for me, it was really hard to justify a high refusal rate for me personally, because I'm just like, I actually don't know anything about this person except for how much money they have. And Mm. I personally do not believe that your socioeconomic status is a one-to-one corollary for your trustworthiness as a human being. Like, and it's wild to me that our official adjudication standards are based on the assumption that the poor are inherently less trustworthy. It took me a good five to six months to feel like I'd mastered immigrant visas. I looked up to the more experienced officers who seemed so confident in the decisions they made and were able to flip through immigration policy with ease. Join me next episode when Fallon and I close out her time as a pseudo adjudicator with a round of mock visa interviews. Join us and play along. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts at TeePublic. If you're a current or former diplomat and you would like to tell your story, please email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. is an oral memoir of my career in the foreign service if you enjoyed this episode i love a review thanks for listening